Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to episode 41 of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about how something that you've always been taught is one of the best of things may actually become one of the worst of things. We're going to talk about how the thing that is supposed to sustain us actually detains us. We're going to talk about how the thing that is supposed to inspire us actually conspires against us. What is that thing? That thing is called hope. By the end of this conversation, I believe you'll be done with dreaming about what you love to do and you'll be more interested in pursuing what you love to do. Before we get going though, I wanna remind you, the comprehensive, lovable study experience is available now. Everything we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that goes along with a year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an individual and group study guide for lovable is available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Again, that's drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. While you're there, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down, and you'll also get a free sample of Lovable. And then each week, you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. And of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available wherever books are sold in paperback, digital, and audio, so check it out wherever you like to buy books. Support a local bookseller if you can. All right, let's get into this week's conversation. How hope immobilizes us, and how hopelessness can become one of the most creative forces in our life. This one can be life-changing. Thanks, as always, for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 40 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, How Hopelessness Can Become Our Best Hope. In recent weeks, we've been talking about all of the internal barriers to identifying and living our truest passions, including the prohibitions we feel against wanting good things, the discouraging voice of shame that continues to speak within us, outdated mental rules about what might actually be possible in our life, and the belief that we have to be fully formed before we can start. This week, we're going to talk about another barrier, one that hides in plain sight, one that we often think of as an asset but may be undermining the practicing of our passions we're going to talk about hope. Before we do though, let's check in about your experiences so far in these months of living, these months of reconnecting with your truest passions and identifying the resistance that arises as your passions become more clear. What clarity are you achieving and what are you noticing about the form your resistance is taking? And while you're thinking about what you want to share in that regard, um, last week, and specifically, we talked about imposter syndrome and how we, uh, we all feel sort of unfinished and not prepared enough to practice our passions. 
Um, and our exercise involved acknowledging the ways we are not perfected <laughs> while affirming that we can start practicing anyways, even if we're not perfect and fully arrived. Um, so as I sort of contemplated this exercise again, um, I've done this exercise in the past. I sort of contemplated doing it uh, again. Um, and I realized something that over the years, um, I've sort of gradually internalized about who I am and my identity. Um, and it speaks directly to this issue of imposter syndrome and feeling like we're not finished. It's really been helpful to me. And, and basically, this is, this is the idea. Um, that I am never going to be the most valuable player. Um, you know, there's whenever there's an athletic contest or a tournament or whatever, someone's a you know the best player on the field. I'm never going to be the best player on the field, um, but I strive to be the most improved player on the field. Um, and for me, this has shifted my focus over time. Um, when I make a mistake, instead of focusing on the mistake, the focus becomes how do I improve this? How do I get better at that? Um, and mistakes become an opportunity to sort of strive for that. Um, that ability to improve it rather than um, mistakes prove that I'm not finished enough to continue. And actually I tell a story in Lovable uh, where uh, in kindergarten after my first season of soccer I was given the most improved player trophy. Um, and I actually came to this awareness a number of years ago. I was in the garage and I tell the story in Lovable to some extent. I'm in the garage um, and I'm in a very intentional way going through all the trophies that I've earned over time and I've saved them through move after move after move like I'm really attached to these things and I realize how much I've become attached to um, to wanting to be the best to wanting to be awarded to achieving and I find there in the midst of all those trophies the tiniest trophy of all a little most improved player trophy from kindergarten and I realized that that was the one that was most valuable to me um, because uh, because that's what life is really like. Um, there aren't too many MVPs out there, um, and if we spend our life trying to become one or comparing ourselves to them, we'll never get started. Um, instead, what does it look like to say, I just want to be the most improved player. I, I want to I I take the ways that I make mistakes and I fail and I fall, and I want to get back up and get better at it. So that's something that's become a consistent part of my identity, and I thought it might continue to speak into um, our conversation from last week about imposter syndrome. Having said all that, where are you at? Uh, ways that you're gaining clarity about your passions? How are you getting that clarity? What's the resistance that's rising up as you think about it? Steve writes, finding belonging in a spiritual community is difficult as shame-based relating gets exposed, but also held with a grace that believes shame isn't the core of even the folks who seem bound by it. Man, that is so good. Steve, one of the things we've talked about a lot in this podcast is how um, belonging forms the foundation for uh, beginning to practice our passions. Um, because we do need to be rooted in a community of people that, and, and, and to be clear, this idea of belonging is very much rooted in grace. Um, belonging are places in which grace is the operative way of relating, not shame, right? Um, people see you, they see you make mistakes, they see all of your shortcomings, and they see right through that um, to the heart of who you are, and they celebrate who you are in spite of all of your your very normal shortcomings um, and even some of your not normal ones so we we need that foundation of community that grace-based community of belonging um, to say to encourage us to say that's that's who you are 
that practicing of your passion, it may look weird to all those other people or all those other people may criticize how you're doing it um, or reject you or troll you or whatever, but we see it as a natural extension of the you we've gotten to know and to celebrate and we, we encourage you to go do that thing. We all need those people sort of in our corner. And then of course, you know, true places of belonging, we reciprocate that for them as well. So um, Steve, thanks for reminding us again of this connection between our places of belonging and how we develop the courage and the encouragement from our people to sort of go out and, and practice our passions. Missy writes, I always come back to fear, not only fear of failure, but fear of success. Success brings a lot of change and attention. Yeah. Oh, that's so important, Missy, because yeah, we focus on the potential for mistakes and failure and falling down. Um, but fear of success is a very real thing, isn't it? I mean, success does all sorts of things. Success um, increases the standard by which you're judged, right? I've had success and now I, uh, I need to keep performing at that level. Um, you know, one of the, uh, I don't know if anyone has heard of this sort of concept, the Sports Illustrated cover jinx. Um, the, the way the legend goes is that landing yourself on the cover of Sports Illustrated jinxes you so that you perform badly in your next, uh, in your next performance or game or whatever. Um, but there's a very real statistical explanation for that phenomenon, and it's called regression to the mean, which is when, in other words, if you perform so extraordinarily that you end up on the cover of Sports Illustrated, well, no one can maintain that level of performance every week, right? You're exceptional for a week. Um, and so next week's performance is probably going to just be your typical performance, and it's going to look bad compared to the previous extraordinary one, and so you're going to look like you were jinxed right? And I think that's a big part of the fear of success is I did so well um, to earn this attention to sort of get in the spotlight. And I can't keep I can't, I can't perform that well every week, I can't perform that well every time out. And so my my typical ordinary performance is going to start to disappoint people. That's the fear, right? Um, and uh, we attract more attention um, with success, <laughs> people start to pay attention. Um, that's a hundred, you know, if, if, if one person was paying attention and then you're successful and a hundred people are paying attention, that's a hundred times more people who can reject your next performance. <laughs> yeah, just change too. Uncertainty is scary. Like, as long as I'm doing what I'm doing right now, even though it may not be terribly fulfilling, at least it's not terrifying. At least I know what to expect. Uh, I'd rather, you know, choose the thing I know that isn't the most desirable thing than the thing I don't know. Um, which is can be scary. So I really appreciate you pointing that out. I think there's a lot of people who needed to hear that today. Um, that's a legitimate fear. Um, it's as much, it needs to be overcome, that sort of resistance about success as much as anything else. So thank you for naming it. Brenda writes, resistance, asking myself about my involvement in youth ministry and sports now that my children aren't there. Is it my passion or not? Do I have a right to continue since I'm not a professional? I'm good, am I good at this really, or was I just a mom of teenagers and now I'm not? Boy, that is, you know, Brenda, at, at a level beyond even the specifics of your involvement in youth ministry, it, it, it's, a, it's an issue that so many parents deal with, right? I had a, a passion and an excitement for this thing. I was really involved in this thing. But as my kids begin to leave that thing, 
how much of that passion was about my children and how much of that passion was about this thing. And now that my kids aren't involved, how do I interface, if that is my true passion, how do I interface with that thing that I was doing and so excited about? Um, those are those are really great and thoughtful questions to be asking. Um, and uh, do I have a right um, since I'm not a professional? Um, am I good at it? Um, so there's two pieces there too, Brenda, that are so important, which is, and we've touched on these each a little bit, is um, we don't want to spend too much time waiting on authority to ordain us to practice our passions. Um, it's, I think, having authority that, that, that can um, ordain us is great. Sort of like a publisher who says, we want to publish your book. But should I, should I not start writing until a publisher is kind of, ordained me and said, uh, as an authority, we say that you are worthy of being a writer. Um, yeah, you have a right to do it no matter what, even if you're not a professional, as long as you don't pretend you're a professional, right? Like I, uh, an unlicensed, uh, therapist can't, um, go around, hang a shingle saying they're a licensed clinical psychologist, but can they, can they essentially practice, uh, motion, you know, caring for others emotionally, um, helping others think through life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have every right to do that. Um, and all of us do. We don't want to wait for somebody else to give us permission. We want to go after it. Um, and then, you know, this question of, am I, am I good at this? Or was I just a mom of teenagers? We want to more and more in these months of living shift the focus from, am I good at it? To, am I in love with it? Um, because the am I good at it question um, starts to stir up. It's just a, it's a trap for all sorts of shame, right? Like um, you start to compare yourself to others and wonder, well, compared to them, am I as good at, at doing this or, or whatever? And instead say, you know what? Um, I, I'm, I love doing it. I'm going to go after it and the skill will come or it won't. And if it doesn't, we'll see if I can still practice it. And if it does, then great. Then my skill and my passion intersect and, and we'll enjoy that. And for everybody listening, that's my dog, Cole, who decided to wake up from his nap. Cole, welcome to the podcast. Deb F. writes, yes, fear. What do they call it? False evidence appearing real. Mm, I like that. I have one third of a book done, and I just can't settle down to continue. I've decided to take small steps, starting an idea category box, creating a timeline, and sitting for just 15 minutes every morning and to start a small habit. I find writing takes just as much thought time as it does the physical putting it in print. I have writer's block even without even writing, <laughs> laugh out loud. And these are, I'm going to just share some really, I think, helpful resources for everyone um, because they've helped me so much. Um, in terms of dealing with resistance with a capital R when it comes to the creative process, I mean, there's nobody better than Stephen Pressfield. Um, his books, The War of Art, Turning Pro, and then he recently released The Artist's Journey, which I'm in the middle of reading. Um, such encouragement to just name what the resistance is and and be i mean and be aware that you are in a in a, a battle of sorts um with that shame manifested as resistance telling you all uh, for all sorts of reasons that you don't have any right to do this um so stephen pressfield's work and then uh ann lamott's work uh bird by bird her writing uh, her, her book bird by bird about writing so encouraging because she's she she encourages exactly what you're describing deb which is the sense of um even even if i'm afraid even if i don't have any sense of what's going to come out of me today 
the, the phrase she always uses is butt in chair. I need to put my butt in the chair and I need to do the work. And if I end up with two sentences, that's great. If I end up with um, 200, that's great too. Um, there's a story about an, uh, a writer some time ago who walked out of his study one day and someone asked how it went and he said, uh, he said, oh, terrible, I got seven words today. And they looked at him and they said, uh, seven words, that's pretty good for you. He goes, yeah, the problem is I don't know what order they go in. <laughs> so to know that you're not alone in that struggle, um, and it points out something else that's really important. Practicing your passion, discovering what your passion is and practicing is, doesn't mean that life gets easy. In many ways, it means it gets harder. It's just that you've discovered something that you're excited enough about and interested enough about and passionate enough about that you'll persist even when it's frustrating. Um, so yes, you know, get in that chair. Um, as I told my son who started working on the introduction to the book we're writing together and sort of sat down, he's like, I don't know what to write. I said, you can write whatever, write a grocery list. Just get your fingers moving and you'll discover that, uh, that something decent starts to come out of them eventually. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. And sure enough, within about 15 minutes, he, um, he shared some pretty cool stuff on paper. So yes, the doing of it um, is so important, insisting that we take action. And really, that's what today's uh, topic is going to be all about. Jack writes, my passion is painting, mostly on canvas. I've done it since I was a little kid. I find things I'd like to paint, and then sometimes I get to paint uh, to them. This year, I was able to begin displaying things for sale and <laughs> a side hustle. Well, no official sales yet. It's disappointing, but then I remind myself that the art I've done and sold in the past were for people that asked me to do specific things that meant a lot to them. They have faith in me to know I'll do my best and love it while I do it. There's a real connection to those pieces when they're finished. That's more important than to have a stranger pick up one of my favorite paintings and take it away with them. It's not about money or status or recognition. It's about using your gifts to make relationships richer, I think. Took a while to realize it's not about me. That is beautiful. We're so grateful for that, um, that wisdom that as soon as, as soon as the practicing of your passion becomes about you, um, you know the ego is at play. The ego is sort of hijacking your passion and trying to use it for uh, personal gain, status, affluence, you know, whatever. Um, and we need to be really, really careful of that um, because once your ego hijacks your passion, um, it will, it will, it will damage it. Um, and and hopefully you can reclaim it from your ego before it's it's too badly damaged. Um, you know, I shared a blog post today in which I said, you know, there's so much of this content that I produced around Lovable, an individual study guide, a group study guide, this companion guide that we're working through here. And um, in, the, in the post, I share how my, my ego is wanting to hijack all of that, monetize it, turn it into some sort of, you know, I don't know, um, additional thing, product, empire, whatever. And, uh, and thankfully, I was able to kind of claim it back from my ego and say, actually, what I've always wanted to do is help people. And this is helpful, and I'm going to give it away for free. Um, so again, for those who are listening, um, you know, go to drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience and get all that content. Um, so much peace for me when I decided to just go ahead and give that away rather than letting my ego run away with it. So thank you for that reminder that we have to be careful of letting our ego hijack our passion. 
And, uh, and Missy adds, thanks for this, Jack. It is a great reminder of the why. Yep, and Brenda writes, that's good, Jack. Yes, not just the what we're doing, but the why we're doing it. Um, so the one of the, the things we talked a lot about in the months of belonging is the why, that um, the ego's function is protection, the soul's function is connection. Um, and so either one of those parts of you can be practicing your passion. <laughs> and in my experience, it's a dance. Like I don't, um, I don't feel like, oh, I used to, my, my ego used to usurp my passion and to use it for all of its, you know, um, nefarious purposes. Um, I think it's a constant dance. Like I can, in the middle of a piece of writing, I can find my ego starting to take over. Right. And now I'm practicing my passion for different reasons, for a different why. Um, so we want to be constantly sort of mindful of and monitoring um, what part of me is is in charge right now in terms of practicing this passion. Missy writes, uh, I also believe our passion is not related to our own mission, but God's mission. Um, and Deb F. writes, I agree, Missy. Um, yeah, so I, I'm glad that you said that. You know, one of the one of the big concepts, and we're going to unpack this later in these months, one of the big concepts in Lovable is that um, passion alone doesn't necessarily uh, imbue us with a sense of purpose. That our passion plus our pain equals our purpose. And, and what that means is that um, when, we, when we have identified what the, the passion we love to practice it, when we practice it um, with the with the, the intention of redeeming the pain we've experienced in life and then also redeeming that pain in the world, um, then almost invariably um, a profound sense of purpose follows. Um, and so, and I, you know, I do, I think that's God's work in the world is redeeming the, the pain that we've experienced and the pain that we've wrought. And, um, and so, yes, so this idea that this isn't just about kind of us ultimately. Um, and I think I, I think I use the example in lovable, but maybe not like, here's a good one. If your passion is gardening, um, you will, um, enjoy it, but you may not experience a profound sense of purpose until you begin to give some of those vegetables away to people who need them or until you mentor a kid in town who, um, doesn't have much direction and, and teach them how to garden, you know, until that, that passion is practiced in the service of redeeming some sort of pain and brokenness. Um, it doesn't, it oftentimes doesn't feel as profoundly purposeful. So important point there. We're going to unpack that more as we go through these months. Okay. So, you know, so much of our conversation today already has been about this idea of, of, of just doing it right. Of, um, you know, maybe another way of saying it is, Another barrier to overcoming, um, to, to practicing our passions is thinking we need to overcome our resistance to begin practicing them. And it's like, no, your resistance goes along with you right into the practicing of it, right? Go back to what Deb F. you were saying. Um, if you wait until you feel super excited about sitting down and writing, you may never sit down and write. Um, you have to sit down with your resistance, your anxiety, your fear, your shame sitting right there next to you, next to you. And, and what you hope to do is you hope that your, your heart types instead of your shame, <laughs> um, that, that your, your soul is sort of in charge of the process as much as possible, even though they're all there with you, all that uncertainty and shame and resistance and fear. 
So I think what we'll do is we'll kind of continue with that theme of, um, of doing and we'll get right into this week's content um, and, uh, and then continue the discussion from there. Okay, um, so this is one of my favorite, and out of this whole year of listening, loving, and living, this is one of my favorite weeks of the year. Um, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to take your hope away from you so that you'll quit hoping and start doing. All right? Uh, it's week 40 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, How Hopelessness Can Become Our Best Hope. Several springs ago, as the long, bitter Chicago winter persisted well into March, my wife and I started hoping for something different. We began searching for houses in Nashville. Every morning, we'd check our weather app for the temperature in Nashville, and every night, we'd scan our email for new home listings. By the time we fell asleep, we'd be dreaming of an acre of wooded land in the temperate winters and rolling hills of Tennessee. It gave us hope. Eventually, though, summer arrived, and we stopped looking at Nashville listings. Hope is a wonderful thing when it feels like the wind at our backs, carrying us toward the good things we desire. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes, maybe even most of the time, we hope so we don't have to change anything at all. Kids, for instance, sit in school and daydream about summertime so they can endure the monotony of the classroom. And sometimes we all live our lives like day's school children. We dream of future possibilities in order to endure present realities. We imagine something beautiful so we can accept something that isn't. We use our hopes to inoculate ourselves against our lives, instead of allowing our lives to propel us into the things for which we hope. Hope can be a beautiful thing because it gives us direction and imbues our lives with a sense of purpose and meaning. But hope can also be the worst of things because sometimes we settle for having a direction rather than walking in that direction. Sometimes our numbered days are spent hoping and waiting instead of acting and living. Sometimes hope can actually keep us stagnant. High school students hope their study habits will improve with a change of scenery in college, but it doesn't happen and they fail out. Hope that doesn't happen to your boys, Brenda. Um, it apparently hasn't happened to your senior. Um, young people hope they will feel more secure once they are dating and married, but it doesn't happen and they end up either codependent or divorced. Married people hope their marriage will get better when a kid comes along, and then they hope it will get better when the kids leave home but it never does, and they spend a lifetime waiting for love instead of learning how to love. Employees experience an oppressive job, and they imagine returning to school and doing the thing they've always loved to do in the margins of life, but the imagining provides just enough relief to guarantee it will never actually happen. Several years ago, I attended a continuing education seminar in which therapists learned therapeutic interventions by becoming the clients. I actually talk about this particular continuing education seminar at the very beginning of Lovable. Uh, I share a different experience uh, from that weekend. But here's this one. At one point during a lengthy meditation, the instructor had us visualize a filing cabinet. He instructed us to open a drawer and to see inside the drawer a series of folders, one for each year of our life. We opened the folder corresponding to the current year and envisioned there a scene in which we are with a group of our loved ones doing the thing we always do to hide and to keep ourselves safe in relationships. The visualization made me sad. Next, we put the folder away and pulled out the folder five years down the road. This time, I expected to envision a new, hopeful scenario. But instead, he gave us the exact same instructions. Imagine doing what you always do. This time, the visualization made me uncomfortable. The exercise continued with the folders corresponding to 10, 15, and 20 years in the future. Each time, he gave the same instructions. By the end of the exercise, I was angry. 
and so was everyone else in the room, people were demanding to know why, in a therapeutic exercise, he wouldn't help us to envision change. And he explained, By envisioning change, you would have been robbed of the experience of not changing. You need to suffer the reality of not changing, and by suffering it, you may actually be motivated to change it. Otherwise, you will just plan on changing it. He called it creative hopelessness. Hope is a beautiful thing, but hopelessness is a beautiful thing too when it gets us agitated enough to say, no more, enough. I have one chance at this life, and I won't spend one more day doing the same old thing. I once heard an interview with a Jewish rabbi. He said we all waste our lives trying to avoid suffering. Instead, he said, we should wrestle with our suffering and refuse to let it go until we have received a blessing from it. What if the crises we experience, the oppression we live through, the restless feeling in our hearts, and the itching in our brains to do something different are the things we shouldn't release until we have received a blessing from them? And what if the blessing is a hope lived instead of just a hope hoped? Is it possible the thing we want to do in the midst of our troubles is the thing we were made to do every day? Life isn't about hoping, it's about making our hopes a reality. We are spending our lives hoping to live, but maybe we should spend them living our hopes. So that is the, uh, the, the reading for this week, and I, I'm guessing you can already begin to anticipate what our practice is going to be um, for this week. But before we jump right into actually talking about doing it, um, I really, maybe more than ever, I'm curious to hearing your reactions to this reading. Because, you know, in that reading, in that experience I had at that continuing education, um, in that room where I practiced this for the first time, resistance to the idea was thick. Like, it took the form, I and mean, people were angry. <laughs> like, why, I mean, we spent 25, 30 minutes doing that. Um, why would we spend 30 minutes just picturing nothing changing? Um, and, uh, and there was real anger about that. So as you think about this exercise, um, what resistance to this idea do you feel arising in you right now? Um, or in contrast, what possibilities do you see it opening up for you? Uh, what scenes do you, you know, when you picture the same old scene lived out with regard to the, the passion that you've, or passions that you've identified or the things you want to do or the things you love to do, and you picture the same old scene of resistance sort of bubbling up, um, what, what scenes do you want to change right now as you think about that? Rebecca writes, having direction versus walking in that direction. That's good. And Deb F. writes, great exercise. Um, yeah, having direction versus walking in that direction is probably, it's probably the best way to summarize it. Um, so sometimes having a direction sort of gives us just enough like hope and sense that something's about to happen that it sort of robs us of the urgency or the tension or the internal conflict that would actually lead to us pursuing it, right? And so, so yes, um, that's a great way to frame it, having a direction versus walking in that direction. Deb F. writes, I just realized that I kept hoping to have more time to live my passion of writing when I'm retired. I'm two years retired. I've got nothing to show for it. Wow, that's quite a revelation. Talk about an aha moment. Deb, your willingness, your courage to sort of be honest about your own process um, is so valuable for the rest of us. Um, and, and the value here is that, thank you for that. Like, you're, 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 letting, you're, you're giving us a window into how this plays out, right? Um, well, I, I hope that someday when the conditions are right, um, then I'll be able to get started. But almost invariably what you consider, what you, what you experience then is once those conditions occur, if they do, 
is that some other form of resistance you know, replaces it. And you discover that actually your hoping was a form of resistance. Um, and, and so, yeah, how do we cultivate instead a sense of urgency that conditions will never feel totally, I mean, particularly for, I mean, for us writers, conditions will never feel right to sit down and put yourself out there. <laughs> like it's never going to be comfortable. It's never going to be easy. Uh, Stephen King, I saw an interview with him recently where, you know, he's been at this 40 years, multiple, I mean, by, by any standards, probably the most successful, uh, commercially successful fiction writer of all time. And he gets anxious every time he, he writes a book. <laughs> like, it doesn't go away, right? So if we're hoping for a time where conditions are right so that we'll just feel good about it, um, they probably won't happen. Deb, thank you for sharing that. Steve writes, Jacob wrestling, even as he suffered with a hip thrown out of joint, refusing to release the source of his suffering until the blessing was given, which was an entirely new identity. Wow. Thanks for much to ponder in this in this creative hopelessness as we wait and ache. You know what, Steve? You, you're you tracking so closely with where, where I'm coming from that actually the story in that the Jewish rabbi was referring to from, in his case, the Torah, was actually that story about Jacob, um, right? And this is a story where Jacob um, is wrestling with God all night um, and his hip, is, his hip is thrown out of joint and he refuses to quit to quit wrestling until God gives him a blessing. Um, and instead, oftentimes what happens when we practice our passions, and we're going to unpack this too this in these next couple months, when we start practicing our passions and it starts to, and we start to feel the suffering of it, we interpret that as a sign that we're doing something wrong. Um, and instead we can ask, what, uh, what blessing can I continue to hold out for in the middle of this struggle? Right. Um, and, and to, to have faith that there is a blessing that's going to come from it. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're tracking really closely, Steve. Good stuff. Brenda writes, I thought of the Jacob story too. And I relate to the struggle um, of being interpreted as a wrong track when it isn't. Um, yeah, well, um, you know, there's, I have a whole chapter on that in Lovable. Um, it's a natural human instinct. We're sort of always getting out our divining rods going, if it ain't going right, I must have gone wrong. <laughs> right? And uh, it's like, no, whatever path you're on um, is still part of life, and life goes wrong. Um, and, and so it doesn't mean you're going the wrong way. It just means you're going. Um, and as we're talking about here, it might mean that you're going the right way. Uh, when we're on the path of what we really love to do, um, resistance arises even more than ever. So, um, yeah, so let's, let's make sure we don't interpret it. Um, and we can go to our people, too. We say, hey, this is going all wrong. Am I, am I off? We want to go to our people, get wise counsel. Um, and oftentimes we'll find ourselves reassured that, nope, we're doing exactly what we're here to do, and uh, it's just part of the process. Rebecca writes, I have for a long time had clear direction, but my feet have fallen prey to the surrounding resistance. Yeah. Rebecca, I just, I hope Rebecca, Deb, I hope you all just know, um, you're, like, you're, in, you're in rare company admitting that publicly, um, but you are not alone. You are in a great, big, huge crowd of us in terms of actually experiencing it. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, your feet have fallen prey. What a poetic way of saying um, that, uh, that resistance keeps us still and keeps us from moving forward. Um, I 
think something else that occurs to me as as we talk about this is that <laughs> if if we recognize that we're sort of holding on to hope in order to sort of delay the beginning of our practicing, um, we also don't want to think, well then, okay, so that's the resistance then. And once I start practicing, my resistance will go away. I think it's the opposite. I think once you start practicing, right, once you, as Anne Lamott says, put your butt in the chair or you get your feet moving, um, you plant the garden, whatever, um, then you're going to discover all the other forms of resistance that comes up. And one of the things we talk about in Lovable is that one of the things that will come up is your shame will return louder than ever. Um, and so you'll discover that this practicing of your passion isn't an end point. It actually sort of sends you right back in this cycle of becoming, um, where now you're back wrestling with your worthiness in a whole new way again, um, and embracing yourself even more, more fully, um, trusting your worthiness even more completely, living even more faithfully. Um, and then you continue to progress back through now again, practicing your passion in a whole new way. So it's this cyclical thing. Um, and that's what'll happen once we get started all sorts of resistance and shame, new, new stuff will come up. And, uh, and that's the way it goes. It's not a sign that we're not doing it right. All right, so let's, uh, let's continue this, this discussion, this topic, uh, by getting into this week's exercise, which I don't think anyone is going to be surprised by. Um, it's the week 40 practice. Here we go. Perhaps I've already spoiled this week's exercise for you by telling you about it, but let's try it anyway. Begin by coming to mindfulness, which is to say getting comfortable in a quiet place without interruptions, breathing naturally, slowly bringing your attention to the breath, becoming mindful of each moment in which your attention wanders from your breath, and then gently returning your attention to the breath. Put this down until you have settled into the rhythm of this, and then slowly move through this exercise. Now, for those who are practicing this at home and want a little bit of extra guidance and structure and scaffolding around this, um, as a therapist, the app that I, the number one app that I recommend is, and it's free, is the Headspace app and that's Headspace, um, and uh, it's a free app that you can then eventually purchase subscription, which gives you ac access to more um, mindfulness-based practices. Um, but this this initial breathing practice, some, some basic education about mindfulness, and then some initial exercises around breathing, all available for free there. Um, I have not had anybody who said that they didn't really take to... Um, the gentleman who uh, created the app and narrates the exercises. So the Headspace app can be a great way to, to begin practicing this first paragraph of the exercise, just coming to mindfulness. Then slowly move through this exercise. First, begin to visualize a filing cabinet. Picture the material it is made of, the color, the nicks and scratches, the handles. Now pull out a drawer. You can, by the way, you can notice, like, does it come out smoothly? Does it have a hitch in it? Does it feel old and rusty? Whatever. Take in sort of all the sensations about the filing cabinet. Notice a file for every year of your life. Picture the numbers. Are they written in pen? Are they written in pencil? Um, were they done by a, you know, label making machine? Whatever. Picture the numbers. Slowly flip through them until you find the current year. Open it. Envision within it a scene that captures a disappointing rut you find yourself in during your day-to-day -day life. See the ways it keeps you safe. See the ways it keeps you imprisoned. Now close the file, replace it, and move forward five years. Repeat the exercise. Now move forward 10 years. Repeat. 20 years. Repeat. By the way, each time as you move forward, notice yourself in the exercise. Notice how you've aged five years. Notice how there's more gray hair. 
uh, how your skin is uh, a little bit less supple. Notice how you're moving a little more slowly. You're a little more tired. Notice the passage of time. Now, feel the hopelessness of never changing that disappointing habit, pattern, or routine. Feel the hopelessness of never really living what you want to live in your numbered days and years. Let your hopelessness agitate you. In chemistry, to agitate means to stir up or arouse. Let your hopelessness stir things up. Let it arouse you. Now open the drawer again. Flip through the file to the year five years from now. Open it. Envision within it a scene in which you are living what you want to live with your life. You won't get there by hoping for it, only by doing it. Give yourself time for this exercise. Feel it. Hopelessness is a crummy feeling. Erasing it is usually pretty good motivation. And, uh, and that is this week's, that's this week's exercise. Um, it is, I think, one of the harder exercises to do um, and one of the more rewarding exercises to do. Um, in the long term, and uh, so quite a challenge for you this week. What are your thoughts about this this practice this week? Jack writes, it's almost as if taking the time to do things for ourselves, following our passions, seems selfish sometimes. My parents are so busy, maybe because they think they should attend all their grandkids' school sports activities, that they're too exhausted sometimes to do things together or alone. So I think some resistance, for me anyway, might be the selfishness of using my own time and money on myself yeah jack that's a that is a a big one and and if that's if that's a, a place where anyone's resistance is anchored it's not okay for me to want good things for myself i would um I'd sort of refer you back to maybe the first uh week of these months of of living which involved um this this idea that um, it's a story I shared that, you know, I had a conversation with my kids once. Why do you like December more than January? In January, you've got all the presents. In December, you just are wanting them. And the, the kids love wanting. They, 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 a kid knows it's okay to ask for and want good things, like for myself. They, they have no hesitation about that. Um, but it gets drilled out of us. Um, we're told that it's selfish, that... Um, that it might be even be sinful to want good things for ourselves. Um, and, and so you get a world full of people who somehow have picked up on this idea that, um, that what I do with my life shouldn't be enjoyable or edifying or nurturing for myself at all. Um, and it's a, it's a quick way to end up with a very um, resentful, unhappy, uh, disillusioned world. Um, the good news is so good. And the good news is that what you have been made to do, what you love to do, and what you're here to do, they're all the same thing. Doesn't mean it eliminates suffering, doesn't mean it eliminates hardship in the doing of it, um, but that, that is the good news. It's set up for you to, to enjoy yourself um, and to not have to feel like that's selfish. Um, and as we've talked about, then as, as, the, as that passion overflows into the world, we begin to see the pain of the world slowly redeemed. Emily writes, wow, 20 years from now makes me want to stay on track now. <laughs> Brenda writes, when you're in your 50s, thinking about 20 years is pretty hefty. Hefty is a good word. Emily writes, I'm with you, 43 to 63. It's a full stage of life. Aging parents, teens growing and leaving the house and starting off on their own lives, starting the empty nest stage of life, want to have my priorities right. Yeah, like 15 to 35, especially these days, as families kind of 
are getting more and more delayed. 15 to 35 is like, I'm still sort of trying to establish myself and my career and maybe starting a family. 43 to 63, right? 50 to 70. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot happening in those 20 years. So, um, but I hope that, that wherever you find yourself in listening to this episode, um, that considering the things you want to do now and the possibility that in 20 years you'll still be wanting to do them but not, and really experiencing that um, can be arousing enough to lead to that, that sort of action, planning and action that we are hoping for. Deb F. writes, as someone who will be 65 in about 13 days, happy birthday, a little early. Um, I say you will be 70 or 63 anyway, so you might as well go for it. Yeah, right? Um, well, and then we just, I mean, you, we hear so many stories about people who um, come to the discovery of their passion in their 70s and their 80s and live deeply generative years in, in, during that time of their life. Um, that's one of the things that I kept very focused on as I was writing Lovable, and particularly this, this section about passion and purpose, because, man, most of the stuff out there about passion and purpose, when you read it, it's, it's geared towards you're in your late 30s, early 40s, and, and now you're going to kill it. You're going to start a business, and you're going to... And there can be a subtle sense of shame in that, and this, this is the form it takes. You're not young enough to have a passion. You're not young enough to find your purpose. And that's just shame all over again, right? It's just another version of I'm not good enough. And um, and I believe the good news is so good that at any point that that, that passion can hibernate within you for 85, 90 years. Um, and that as you begin to discover it, you can begin to practice it. I think that's the good news. So, um, so thank you, um, Deb F., for modeling that for all of us. Deb F. writes, I'm going to do this exercise as a way to get the juices flowing. Great idea. Yeah, so... Deb, the, um, you know, one of the more common, one of the, one of the more reliable sort of models in psychology is it's Prochaska's stages of change. Um, and the stages of change are pre-contemplation, contemplation, planning, action, and maintenance. Um, and a lot of us, when it comes to practicing our passions, we are in, um, we're in pre-contemplation, uh, or we're in contemplation rather. We know we want to do something and we're thinking about and hoping about doing it. Um, and what Prochaska says is that emotional arousal is the number one experience that moves us from, from contemplation, from just thinking about doing it to actually planning to do it. Um, and then of course into action. And so, yeah, by, there's, you can't, you can't cultivate emotional arousal without giving yourself an experience. So this is a way to give yourself an intentional experience that begins to um, to agitate in a, in a way that can be redemptive. Okay, everybody, thanks again. Um, just, I think, for your courage, um, your courage to, to sort of share the things you're struggling with, um, that, that willingness to do that is, um, it's... It, it's found a redemptive purpose in the world. There are people who are listening to this and and um, and learning from your your bravery and your vulnerability. So thank you. Next week um, we're going to focus even more on increasing our sense of urgency about all of this, but in a much less agitating way, um, in a way that is, uh, I think, rich and deeply soothing and invigorating. Um, so it's going to be week 41 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled 
five senseless days that could make sense of the rest of your days. Until then, remember, you are lovable. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Thank you.